A reading from the twelfth chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning with the twentieth verse. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves Me must follow Me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I when I am lifted up from all the earth, lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death He was to die. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> the worm has turned. You ever heard that before? I misunderstood that, Clyde. I didn't know what that meant. I thought I did. I've always liked that phrase. I've said to people before, the worm has turned. Y'all ever use that one? No? We've been out of sync lately with this whole sermon illustration thing, haven't we? Y'all living under a rock somewhere I don't know about? Clyde knows it. <laughs> Clyde said no, he don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well... Alright, so I'm weird. It's okay. I can live with it. The worm is turned, and I've always liked that phrase, but here's what I learned about preparing for this sermon this week is I, I discovered I have been using it all wrong. I have been using that phrase wrong. Turns out it was first recorded by an English fellow named John Haywood in 1546. That thing's had some staying power, hasn't it? And what he wrote was, Tread a worm on the tail, and it must turn again. Apparently, Shakespeare made it famous in Henry VI in his play. And I didn't care much for Shakespeare, so that's probably how I got the phrase all wrong to begin with. But somewhere in my life, I heard that a worm turned. I don't even know where I heard it first. I've always thought that it was a way of saying that a plot had come to a big, gigantic twist, right? 
or something happened that made things more difficult, and I would always say, well, the worm turned. The worm has turned. And I was just using it wrong. Apparently what it meant is even a docile creature will turn intact when stepped on, right? Because if you touch a worm's tail, they kind of curl up. Y'all have done that, right? Please say yes. Thank you. So in the plot that we encounter in today's story from John brought that phrase to mind because there's a sudden twist in it. Well, at least my incorrect use of the phrase, the worm has turned. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus' disciples to be following him around after he called Lazarus out of the tomb? Can you imagine how pumped up they were? They were lit, y'all. Isn't that what the kids say today? They were lit. They were pumped up. Can you imagine all this talk he's been doing and all of a sudden he calls a guy out of the grave? Now we're getting serious, I bet they thought. After seeing him call old graveyard, stone cold dead Lazarus out of the tomb, how excited must they have been about him? And six days before the Passover, Jesus comes back to Bethany, to the house of Lazarus, and stops there on his way to Jerusalem. This must be the time, they must be thinking. He's come back to the scene of the moment. It's about to get good. And he shows up there, and you get another famous story that we won't go into. But we're told by John that When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. They're getting traction, right? People are showing up. It's like if you were to organize some kind of big event and all of a sudden you realize, hey, a bunch of people are coming. You're going to get excited about that, right? It's how preachers feel on Easter when you have 177 instead of 40. You're excited and something's happening. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. I bet they looked at each other and said, hey man, we're cooking with gas now. Y'all have heard that one, right? Then to top it all off, some people they didn't expect to ever show up came. Some Greek people came. Not Jews. Not people who were waiting on the Jewish Messiah. But some people who were from a totally different culture showed up and wanted to see Jesus. And I bet that got them even more excited. These were outsiders. And they've come to see Jesus. They must have heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They must have heard something about him that got them excited and they've shown up. And they come to to Philip, the disciple with a Greek name. They come to Philip at Bethsaida and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I'm prompted by reading that to ask myself, do I wish to see Jesus? How many times during the ordinary course of the days of my life do I sit around and say, man, I wish I could see Jesus? How would that happen? To to whom could we go and, and make our request? Who would we go to and say, hey, we want to see Jesus? Jesus. 
Where do we go? Well, of course, you know, in my present situation, I kind of have to say, well, we go to church and we show up and all that. And... But we're not going to physically see Jesus here, probably. He's not going to walk into the room physically. He's here with us, He says. What would we do? Where would we go? How would we come about that? And that's where the worm turns. You see, they're all excited because people are showing up. They're all excited because it looks like this whole kingdom of God thing is about to just bust the doors wide open. And then all of a sudden, some people come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus' answer to the disciples is, we're headed to the cross. Jesus' answers to we want to see Jesus is, well, go to the cross. If you want to see me, that's where you see me. If you want to understand me, that's where you understand me. Not just beside Lazarus' tomb. Unfortunately, today in the world, a lot of people have the assumption that Christianity is all easy and pie in the sky and waiting on the sweet by and by, but it's not. We're still called to suffer and to go to people who suffer and hurt. We're still called to be persecuted for Christ's sake. How will we see Him the most when we follow Him to the cross and go there with Him? Abandoning our comfortable lives and getting into the muck and filth of other people's lives. And guess what? They didn't like hearing that any more than people like hearing it today, which is what makes the prosperity gospel that's on your TV so attractive and wonderful. Because it says we can have whatever we want, do whatever we want, as long as we hold up some sort of notion that we're a good person and we like Jesus. But the question is, do we want to see Jesus? Not do we like Him, Not do we think He's cool. Not do we believe He ever existed. But is there within our will a desire to be part of Christ? These people didn't come just to look at Him. They came to know Him. When the NRSV says, we wish, the word that it uses to translate is from the Greek root thalo, which is will, which is the desire of your core. The will used to be the desire. That's what we meant. It's the desire of my heart to see Jesus. That's what they're saying when they come there. We would see Jesus, the old King James says. That's what we all memorize, most of us. We would see Jesus. We will that we see Jesus. It's in our heart that we see Jesus. It's at the core of us that we come here today and see Him. We have a word for that. It's called willpower. You've heard that before, right? <laughs> You're a little gun shy now. Willpower. Man, that's a word that shows up every January, right? People start talking about, I wish I had some willpower. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. You know, somebody could say, if I had enough willpower, I'd be exercising more, Right? And we know that exercise is good for us. It can drop your blood pressure, drop your blood sugar, drop everything. It can just make you look good, right? Do all kind of good stuff. Nobody has ever said you can die from too much exercise that I know of. But I thought y'all heard worm would turn too, so be careful with the exercise. 
But here's the thing. We know that if we don't exercise, we won't have as full and a good of a life as we could if we did. And even so, we might say, if it worked for my amazing amount of willpower, I'd be exercising right now. That's a more accurate thing, right? We might say, if I had the willpower, I would be exercising. What we really mean is the power of my will is directed toward laying on the couch and eating ice cream. That's the truth of it. Our wills get misdirected. And these Greek people have suddenly had the sensation of having their will, of their desire directed towards seeing Jesus. And so they show up and say, we would see Jesus. Willpower is an energetic determination for something. I wonder, do we have an energetic determination to see Jesus in our own life? Or are we just satisfied with showing up to worship an hour a week? Do we have an energetic, an energetic determination to see Jesus? Even if truly seeing Jesus begins not at the risen tomb of the risen Lazarus, begins at the cross. Even if it begins at the cross. Lent, this season of the church year, not the fuzzy stuff in your navel, but the season of the church year is about thinking about just that, about pondering our willpower, about pondering what our heart is designed toward, about parting, part, asking ourselves, where is our energetic determination focused? Is it focused on ourselves or on God? Is it focused on serving what we want or serving God's will in the world? That is the question that Lent wants to raise. And so on Ash Wednesday, we come together and we say to each other, you are dust and to dust you will return. And then we say, repent and believe the gospel. And what we say when we say that is, turn your power of your will over to Christ. Turn to Him and away from yourself. And that's what has happened to these Greek people. God's grace calls us today to a changed will, to a changed heart. And that's why we sang that song as a prayer. It calls us to a changed desire of our heart so that rather than seeing ourselves and seeing what we want in the world of seeing all the things that we're enticed to, we would see instead Christ on the cross for us and see and desire to long to know more of Him, to truly see Him. And here's the thing, seeing Him isn't just about your eyes. And that's where the worm turns. In my incorrect usage, and Jesus tells the disciples that His hour has come. These people have shown up and they must be excited. Now is when He's going to really go out there and live that life of glory and take that kingly throne. And Jesus says instead that he's going to be killed. He says his hour has come. He takes the arrival of these Greek people as a sign that it's time for him to be glorified. And he says in verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people 
to myself. You see, the signs that Jesus had done, including raising Lazarus from the dead, had begun to draw all people to Himself. To create a new power of will. To create the desire to see Him. And Jesus seems to be saying that they will only truly see Him when He is lifted up. And we heard being lifted up last week. It's a holdover from chapter 3 of John, from verses 14 through 16. 316 we know well, but 314 with 15 we don't hear much. And they say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He must be lifted up. Why? So that people can see Him. Remember the snake, it had to be raised on the pole so the people could see it and live, that they could look upon it and live. He has to be lifted up so people can see Him. And now these Greek people are seeing Him and Jesus knows that it's time. They've come wanting to see Him. They want to see the one that raised Lazarus, but Jesus knows that the one they truly need to see is the one on the cross. So maybe we should consider the word see, and that's kind of where I've been heading It comes from a Greek root word, oraho, orao. And that means more than just physical sight. It can mean that they wanted to perceive Him. It could mean that they wanted to understand Him. That they wanted to recognize Him and to experience Him. And Jesus' response to Andrew and Philip is that we best perceive Him. We best understand Him. We best recognize Him. We best experience Him when we see Him lifted up. And that's why Jesus said in chapter 3, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, but may have eternal life. It's easy to get enthralled with Jesus who does miracles. It's easy to get enthralled with the Jesus who raises Lazarus from the dead and wonder if He can raise us from the dead. It's easy to get enthralled with all sorts of things about Jesus, but it's much harder to look upon the cross and be excited about that. Are we willing to see that Jesus, the lifted up Jesus, the crucified, the one who died to give us life? I'm certain we're willing to understand and perceive Him as the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. I have no doubt that we want to understand Him as the one who raised Himself from the dead or that God raised from the dead. I have no doubt that we're very interested in knowing that He can raise us from the dead one day. But apparently, we can't truly perceive Him. We can't truly understand Him. We can't truly recognize Him. And we can't truly experience Him. We can't truly see Him until we see the cross. And so when these people come and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Jesus' answer is, You will see Me when I am lifted up. 
And the cross says to us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Are we willing to see Him? Are we willing to see Him as one who died for us? One who died for me? It's easy to say that Christ died for everybody else. It's easy to say that the rest of the world that's going to hell in a handbasket needs a Savior. But every last one of us needs one too. Are we willing to see Him? How He wants us to see Him. The One who was lifted up for us to give us life. Because without the cross, frankly, we don't see Him at all. Without the cross, we would never understand God's love for us. Are we willing to see Him? I ask you that in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.